Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? Saul Griffith, inventor, engineer, and proud Australian, admits his homeland is part of a rogues gallery when it comes to climate change. Our peer nations are, are Saudi Arabia and Russia and Venezuela and you know, maybe Canada. <laughs> um, Thanks. <laughs> to, 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 throw, to, to throw you under the same bus. <laughs> so why does he say that? For one thing, he's heard the Canadian government's reasons for buying the Trans Mountain Pipeline project. And this is his reaction. It sounds like a word salad to me. This week, a conversation with Saul Griffith, who has dedicated himself to halting climate change. And he says the solution is hiding in plain sight. Electrify everything is the clarion call in his new book. Google the name Saul Griffith, and you'll learn he's earned his PhD at MIT, won a MacArthur Genius Grant in 2007, and is currently the CEO of The Other Lab and the founder of the nonprofit Rewiring America. But Saul Griffith also grew up in the suburbs of Sydney with a mother who was a wildlife artist. He spent his summers hiding, crouched, trying to get photographs of endangered species, and watching sea turtles nest on islands on the edge of the Pacific. And it was there that Griffith developed a deep, abiding love for the world's flora and fauna. That, combined with his love of solving problems, has led him to take on one of the biggest challenges of our time, climate change. In fact, Saul Griffith argues our failure to act on the climate crisis really comes down to a lack of imagination, a failure to convince ourselves that fixing climate change is going to be great. His new book, Electrify, an Optimist's Playbook for Our Clean Energy Future, is out this week. And Saul Griffith joins me now. Hello. Hello. You have been thinking about energy for a very long time. And early in your book, you tell this story about the time you measured every use of energy in your life. Tell me what that involved. I have a wonderful wife. I should, I should <laughs> start there. It involved a wonderful and tolerant wife. I actually weighed everything that I owned. Um, we monitored our energy bills, electricity, natural gas, and all of our gasoline that we purchased for our cars. And so it was not only the energy that we use day to day, but it was also the energy of milk in our life, the amount of energy in the newspapers in our life, et cetera, et cetera. So it was pretty comprehensive. And I think it got frustrating for my wife when I suggested that she shouldn't have a subscription to a seven-day-a-week newspaper, <laughs> <laughs> and, argue, and, I, and I said, because it actually turns out it was tons of newspaper every year and a quite a large amount of energy, and I suggested none, and she suggested, uh, how about just the Sunday newspaper? So we arrived at a compromise. <laughs> I guess that the stakes were pretty high there, weren't they? I think the stakes were very high. That's why I yielded to one day. <laughs> <laughs> That, that, that gives people a sense of, of your 
obsessiveness almost with looking at these kinds of things and looking for ways to solve problems. Now you run a research and design workshop in an old organ factory in San Francisco that focuses on renewable energy. What's, what has made you so passionate in this fight against climate change? Well, I think we have a lot to lose. And, you know, I now have children, so I'm passionate because I'd like my eight-year-old daughter and 12-year-old son to grow up in a world that is still beautiful and still has some biodiversity and has a tolerable climate. Um, and I think we have, we may lose all of that in the next few decades if we don't play our cards right as a species. And so I think it, it is urgent and it is the most pressing and existential problem of our time. And, and when did you, when did this become the cause of your life? Oh, really? I think when I was 20, I still, my oldest friends still rib me for trying to convince them that we should start a company to make cardboard biodegradable coffins when I was about 18 <laughs> or 19. So I think uh, I've, I've been interested for a long time and I was a, a bicycle and public transport activist for a long while when I was young. So I think it's been a, a consistent, but really since I left grad school and moved to the Bay Area, I've been trying to focus as much as possible on the energy side of the climate problem. Dare I ask what happened to the uh, coffin idea? Uh, I actually think people now do this. Um, ah. Just I, I, I didn't get to do it. Somebody <laughs> went back in time and stole my idea and <laughs> commercialized it. <laughs> well, let's talk about what you are doing. Um, the workshop is called Other Lab. Now, I said it's an old organ factory. Tell me what it's like inside. We're extraordinarily lucky. It's a historic building on the National Register. It was the reason it's on the register was it was purpose built to make pipe organs. And so the whole building was designed as a machine to make these giant pipe organs. And there's still the dust of thousands of pipes uh, in the rafters. And in fact, when we took possession of the building, they left a few of the pipe organs behind. So we actually used those on the walls. It's, it's, completely made out of wood and is a beautiful place to be in and a, a creative space to be in. Yeah, you've repurposed some of it, haven't you? Every time my father comes to visit, he likes, he can't sit still. So he ha he <laughs> repurposed a bunch of the wooden pipes to make our conference table and <laughs> various other things. <laughs> a family affair. Can you tell me what you're working on there at the moment? Uh, we have a project in solar-powered micromobility, which is pretty cool. It's a self-powering uh, scooter. And we have a project in isothermal compression, which is a nerdy way of making it more efficient to compress gases, which is going to be very important for compressing carbon dioxide and hydrogen and other gases. We have a nascent project in batteries that I can't say a lot about, but which is very exciting to me. Um, oh, I can hardly wait to hear more about that. Yeah, we're developing a new category of solar modules. And we are developing a thermal storage technology that will help balance the grid and keep people's homes comfortable. A lot of stuff. I, I read uh, one, of, one of your employees said that it was great fun working there because if you had an idea, then you were the, per you were the person who said, let's try. Uh, I love that employee. They get employee of the month for being so polite. <laughs> <laughs> is that, but is that your philosophy? Let, let's try? Oh, we're actually pretty rigorous on the math and the physics. So if it's crazy on first blush, you know, we won't try. But if it's not crazy and, and the sort of simple napkin calculations work out, we give a lot of things a go. Somebody once described the workshop, and I thought this was great, 
they were like, so let us get this right. You spent your whole life building the kindergarten that you wanted to go to. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very, it's very creative. We have all the tools, um, all the crayons. But it's also got a very serious side. And, and so let's get to the, the issue of climate change. You're, in your mind, electrification is the solution. So lay it out. What, what do you think that you, me, and everyone else needs to do in the coming years? So the majority of the climate change problem is energy. It's 80 or 90%, depending if you're looking globally or just at the US, of the emissions problem. And we've still got people who are advocating for enormous amounts of carbon sequestration on fossil fuels and, and other systems. But if you step back and you look at the entire energy ecosystem, and we actually have done that work individually and then in partnership with the Department of Energy, if you think about electrifying all of the end uses of the things we do. So electrifying our vehicles, electrifying the loads in our homes, electrifying our industry, and then generating all of that electricity with clean energy. We actually, without really changing the fabric or the structure of our lives, reduce the amount of energy we need in the US economy, for example, by more than half. So we, we've had a narrative since 1970 about efficiency because the very first time we had an energy crisis, we didn't even have a Department of Energy. So the oil crisis landed on Nixon's desk. And when they looked at the problem and what might be the solution in 1973, because it was a supply side problem, meaning there was 15% of America's energy supply was cut off, they thought, well, if we could be 15% more efficient in our vehicles and 15% more efficient in our appliances, then we won't need that energy. And that gave us the first energy policies, which were the cafe fuel standards, which dictate the efficiency of the world's automobiles and energy star appliances, which dictate the efficiency of our appliances. But that efficiency narrative was pretty useful and it kept a lid on you know, explosive energy growth consumption because machines got more and more efficient. But you can't efficient your way to zero. Otherwise, the petrol-powered car literally doesn't move. So electrification, it turns out, is the efficiency we were always looking for. And that's why I think we just need to very clearly focus our mind on that task. Okay. What is the prescription for a homeowner or a household that, that you see um, them needing to tackle in the coming years? Uh, you just need to change the infrastructure of your life. There are about six or seven decisions that a homeowner or a household makes, and they make them roughly every 10 years. And it's what are the cars in their driveway? What is the heating system in their basement? What heats their water? What type of laundry dryer they have? And what appliances they have in the kitchen? And at the rate that these things get replaced, because water heaters fail every 12 or 15 years, furnaces every 20 years, kitchens get replaced every 12 to 15 years, we need to make sure that we replace the natural gas water heater with a heat pump water heater, replace the natural gas or fuel oil furnace with a heat pump, replace the probably natural gas, maybe propane kitchen appliances with hopefully electric induction. And then for extra credit, put as much solar as we can on the roof and a battery in the garage to make the best use of that solar. That sounds very, very expensive. So how can people afford that, Pe particularly people who live at or below the poverty line? So I think this is the a real question that everyone hasn't started to grapple with yet. Firstly, it, it's not going to be expensive. Over the lifetime of all of these things, they will save energy. And we've, we did this study in the US last year 
showing that by about 2025, the average American household could be saving $2,500 a year on their energy bills. I just did this study in Australia where, for geographic reasons, they have even more opportunity. By about 2023, 2024, households are breaking even, and by the end of this decade, the average Australian household would be saving five or $6,000 a year. So it can save you money, but the problem that you point out is that the upfront cost is high. So I think we, we have to grapple with the fact that for the bottom 50% of households on the income scale, achieving that is going to be difficult. So we actually, I think we need to be thinking about government and private-public partnerships and other ways that help finance every household to go on this journey. Otherwise, it's going to become a divisive cultural issue that solving climate change is a game only for the rich. I guess climate change is also in itself a divisive issue among the haves and the have-nots. In and it of itself. Is. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Oh, you're, you're talking about 120 million homes in, in the United States, in your homeland, Australia, 10 million households. How can all of this happen and happen in the timeline that you want it to? So here's the reality. There's a concept called committed emissions in the climate field, which means the emissions of a machine that already exists. So if you bought a petrol car or a gasoline-powered car last year, it will emit until over the 20 years of its life. If you bought a natural gas power plant last year, it will emit for the rest of its life. If we allow the machines that already exist on the planet today to live out their natural lives, that'll take us to about 1.8 degrees Celsius of global warming. This is why people advocate for retiring the coal plants and the heaviest emitters sooner, which is a good idea. Maybe that brings us down to 1.6 or 1.7. But what it really means is intellectually we now need to, as quickly as possible, get to the point that the next time anyone buys any of these machines that use fossil fuels, they buy the electric alternative. And that's true in the household. That's true in the small business. That's true in industry. And that's how, quite honestly, we do as well as we can in keeping a lid on climate change. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Saul Griffith, if all of the households in America did, as you're suggesting, the United States would need more than three times the electricity it currently produces. Tell me where it's going to come from. Well, let's just put that in context. America uses three and a half terawatts of energy today in all energy forms and only about 440 gigawatts, which is about one seventh of that, is delivered electricity to the consumer. So even if you triple the amount of electricity we need, it's still, like I said earlier, less than half of the energy the US uses today. But it's still, we can still do all the driving and all the heating of homes that some argue are too large, etc. The energy will come from predominantly wind and solar. We'll certainly, we'll keep using the hydroelectricity that's already on the grid. There's a little bit of energy will come from biofuels. Uh, a little bit of energy will come from geothermal and I think practically and pragmatically some will come from nuclear. 
and now it's just a sort of thumb wrestling game to pick the numbers. But I think if you were a betting person, you'd say about 40% solar, about 40% wind, and the 20% will be made up by everything else. All right. And we'll get into the particulars of that in a little bit. But I just want to ask you that one of the concerns about renewable energy is that sources such as solar and wind can't provide stable, reliable source of power. How can the United States ensure renewable energy is consistent and secure enough that people and businesses can rely on it year-round? Well, we're we're going to have batteries everywhere in the system. So the collective batteries in our vehicles is, is going to be a huge amount of storage. Uh, we can also use the thermal systems in our home, namely our hot water heaters and our heating systems, to also store yesterday's or, or the day before's energy and give it to us when we want it. So we'll have an enormous amount of storage. We will also... Is that storage that exists right now? No. You know, we've electrified 1% of the vehicles. <laughs> uh once you electrify all of the vehicles, their collective battery could run the whole country for three or four days. So um, there will be a lot of storage built in to our systems. Are you imagining a, a, a United States where car batteries are powering homes as well as just running the car? Not a huge amount, but a little bit, and they will help balance the grid. We'll also have storage in pumped hydro. We'll also have storage in terms of batteries on the grid, batteries on the distribution networks. But really, the all of those batteries will help the sort of the 24-hour balancing problem and the seven-day balancing problem. But I think for the how do you balance summer and winter, honestly, we will use a couple of techniques. One of them will be oversupply. So the environmentalist movement comes from a place of scarcity, not abundance. And so we've always imagined just barely getting to 100% renewables. But I think we need to get to 120 or 130% because then we're designing for the winter minimum in production, and which also unfortunately coincides with the maximum energy use in the year because that's when everyone heats their homes. But if we have oversupply, you can meet that. And we will also use transmission geographically from east to west and north to south. And the more generation sources you hook up over a larger geographic area, just through the law of averages, helps to balance all of this production. Which means reworking the grid entirely, I would think. Not as entirely as you think. Um, it, it'll be you know, upgrading a lot of the transmission infrastructure, but connecting things that aren't yet connected and making sure that we write the rules of the road so that we can transmit over long distances. It's interesting because uh, we've done a program before on, on the grid in Canada and re and the, the idea that, that Canada needs to rework its grid to provide um, surplus electricity in the have hydro provinces to the non-have hydro, so more of an east-to-west grid than a north-south because Canada exports so much to the United States. So this, this sounds like more than a United States project that you're talking about. Certainly, it will be easier for everyone. The more you electrify everything, the easier it is to electrify everything else is a, sort of an easy statement. And certainly, Canada or US transmission would make an enormous difference using Canadian hydro in the lulls and the you know southern US solar in Canada during the day would make it Canada's job tremendously easier. And so the more we link across countries, 
the more we succeed. And that's already, there's absolutely no way most of the European countries could solve this problem within their own geographic boundaries. You need Norwegian hydro to balance the Swedish grid and, and vice versa. So by necessity, this means more cooperation and more interstate and internation connections. So can we talk about batteries a little bit more? Because what you're suggesting sounds like it needs a lot more batteries than we have now. And to build all those batteries, we need minerals. And one of those minerals uh, is lithium. And I'm asking about lithium because earlier this year, Steve Matthias, uh, the chief of the Long Point First Nation in Quebec, was a guest on this show. And his community actually opposes lithium exploration near its traditional hunting and fishing grounds by an Australian company called Siona. And we talked to him about the push to electrify with batteries. I just want you to hear what he had to say. That remains to be proven yet, you know, what the environmental impact and the impact on our traditional way of life compared to those gas emissions that they claim that it's better for the planet. You know, we've made a lot of sacrifices here in, in my community. My community was uh, flooded to different occasions. And we were told, you know, it was for the betterment, you know, to have clean energy, hydro, electricity. And it's always later, later in our case. And later never comes. So you're happy to let the lithium just stay in the ground? I'm okay with it. I think for the benefit of my people and for a traditional way of life, because we really depend on that. If that's taken away from us, that's a huge sacrifice. There's some sacrifices that we're not willing to make based on their past experience. Now, as someone who grew up with a wonder for the natural world, I'm wondering how you square what you envision with what Chief Steve Matthias just said. I think everyone should be concerned about exactly the issues he's concerned about, but it's almost like we need a moral calculator on, on this issue. You know, if I was designing the energy system that I would tolerate living with, we'd all use substantially less energy and walk more. But I, I, I think... 50 years of the environmentalist movement arguing for that hasn't made much traction with the general populace. So I think we're going to certainly use more energy than is my preference. So this is a grand compromise that we're all negotiating with each other and with our ecosystems. But I think a point that's worth mentioning is there's many places to get the lithium from. We need to do mining for a lot of the things that are we see as necessities in our life. And we should compare the lithium needs with the existing state of play. So if you're an average American or an average Canadian today, you consume personally about six tons or 6,000 kilograms of fossil fuels every year that are burned once and then become carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And there's huge environmental damage from finding, mining, refining, and transporting that 6,000 kilograms of fossil fuels. If we took that model we talked about earlier, about 40% of the energy will come from solar and 40% will come from wind and we'll store about half of it in batteries to make sure that there's that you it's reliable 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you'll need about 50, 50 kilograms of solar per person per year, 50 kilograms of wind power per person per year. That's because they only last 25 or 30 years, then you need to replace them. And you'll need about 50 kilograms, 50 to 100 kilograms of batteries per person per year. The good news, unlike the fossil fuels that we burn once and go into the atmosphere, we are developing the methods to, at very high rates, recycle the solar systems, recycle the wind turbines, and we should be able to recycle the batteries and 
get much closer to a circular economy, which is far less damaging on the ecosystems of the world. You reject technological fixes like carbon capture and storage and hydrogen as truly viable clean energy sources. They aren't, as you say, technology miracles. So I'm, I'm wondering what role technology does play in a sustainable future. We cannot solve the problem without technology. That's So I'm not anti-technology in any way. I'm anti hoping that a new miracle will come along and change the task for us because I think we, at this point, the people who profit from delaying, profit from making us believe that there's another miracle around the corner that's going to make it all easy. We can do it with the technologies that we have right now, solar, wind, batteries, hydro, etc. The reason to be cautious about hydrogen is very popular in a bunch of governments, particularly in, in Europe and Australia and in some places the US right now. And in as, Canada as well. And in Canada as some sort of miracle fuel. But you have to remember, clean hydrogen starts with electricity anyway, and you'd have to generate two or three times as much electricity if you're going to go through hydrogen, which is really just better understood as a battery and a not particularly good battery. And so I think if we we're trying to do half the world's energy through a hydrogen system, we just get to an intolerable amount of solar and wind that you have to install because the hydrogen is inefficient and you'd need to double or triple the amount. The physics is immutable on this. It's just we're up against the law of thermodynamics on, on hydrogen. There's no amount of hoping that changes that equation. And then I think we have a dangerous relationship with carbon sequestration. In fact, we've baked it into the IPCC's what they call socioeconomic pathways. So in the two best case scenarios of the IPCC AR6 report, which is the report that came out a few months ago about, you know, we're in a dire strait, we have to fix this. Their best case scenarios for a one and a half or a 1.9 degree world, both had about 10 gigatons of carbon dioxide negative emissions going back into the ground to be stored somewhere by the middle of this century. That's about the same volume as all of the fossil fuels that we pull out of the ground. It's an enormous amount of material. To imagine that we're going to build an industry that's larger than all of the fossil fuel industries combined by the middle of the century just to pump a very low value thing back in the ground, I think we should be a little bit wary and we should have the broader understanding that we've cheated a little bit on our emissions trajectories and we should actually be electrifying and decarbonizing faster and sooner because we probably won't achieve that level of sequestration. That leads very well into my next question. <laughs> In 2018, the Canadian government bought the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, it's supposed to carry bitumen uh, on an expanded basis from Alberta to the coast of British Columbia. The government bought it for $4.5 billion after the American owner dropped out. Canada's Environment and Climate Change Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, says it was and it is the right thing to do. Just listen to this. Canada needs to ensure that in the context of that transition, it's extracting full value for its resources and using that money to push forward in terms of reducing emissions. Right now, we ship enormous amounts of, of oil by rail. Um, we, we send uh, oil almost exclusively to the United States, where we take a huge discount on the price. And what we're doing is saying it's got to be part of the transition. But part of the transition is, is being able to raise the revenues that enable you to actually make the investments that are required to go there. I'm wondering what you think of that idea that Canada needs the revenue from the country's oil reserves to fund the transition to renewable energy. 
it sounds like a word salad to me, um, but I hear the same arguments are being made in Australia right now, the same arguments are being made in America or all over the world. If you refer back to the committed emissions challenge, we really shouldn't be developing any new reserves. If you really understand 2050 net zero to be the drop dead date to stop using fossil fuels in any large quantity, it really means that we shouldn't be starting any of these new projects and I think the idea that you're going to invest money in this technology to make money to then invest the money in a new technology is a little bit crazy. Why not just go miss the first step? <laughs> you don't make a lot of money with that first investment and just go straight to the second step, which is invest in electrification and invest in renewables and start saving money because these things are on cost curves that are making them cheaper and cheaper. And they really are cost competitive with fossil fuels in nearly every market in the world now. Well, then what is the role of government in all of this? Do you see the current Biden administration achieving any of what you are advocating? I have to choose my words carefully. I work closely with the climate team in the in the White House. I think they're extraordinary individuals and they have the right goals. They came out and proposed 50% emission reductions by 2030 as their goal, which I think is in line with the climate science and the level of aggressiveness we need. So I applaud them for it. The problem is that the the reconciliation bill and the other bills that are coming through the Senate negotiations at the moment don't in any way get us to that by 2050. So the political process is is absolutely not up to the task of the level of ambition of the White House. Real um, politics, right? Getting in the way real politics. I, I actually think that it's all about to change. We've just uh, run a campaign in Australia. So you can really, Australian has had what they call the Australian rooftop solar miracle, which through eliminating government red tape, which is a pretty popular set of policies, they made installing solar on Australian rooftops so cheap that it's installed at under $1 a watt, which translate to a delivered cost of electricity of five or six cents a kilowatt hour, which is cheaper than electricity anywhere in the world. So the cheapest electricity in the world is the solar on your rooftop in Australia. So Australian households are taking it up in huge numbers, 20% across the country, 50% of households in some states. And now they're realizing that it's so cheap, they're using it to convert their heating systems to electric. They're converting to electric cars. And you know the, the math for an electric car is pretty simple. Driving an electric car in Australia on solar made on your rooftop will cost you one or two cents per kilometer traveled, whereas if you're in the same size petrol or diesel car, it'll cost you 15 to 20 cents per kilometer. So I think in that case, the market and the technology has got us to a point where everyone's going to gravitate over here to this thing that's going to save them every time they're doing their activities. And that's where those $5,000 a year in savings come from. Because that technology is nearly there in a whole bunch of countries, I think a lot of the politics will change. And we at least have to hope that the politics changes when it starts to really make economic sense. The government, I think, really needs to make sure that the regulations, you know, we've got 100 years of regulations written for a fossil fueled world, and a lot of them are in conflict with making the transition as cheap as possible. So we need to clean up the regulations to make sure that the transition is cheap and economic as possible. The government will have to help finance a lot of these projects because of the long capital times. And there's all sorts of historical precedent for the 
governments helping to finance essentially what amounts to home additions. And I think that's really the government wrong. You're making Australia sound like a star on on the world stage when it comes to uh, climate change and fighting it. Well, Australia is amazing, and I think this is true all over the world. The Australian federal government is a pariah and looks like a petrostate. And, you know, our peer nations are, are Saudi Arabia and Russia and Venezuela and, you know, maybe Canada. Um, Thanks. To, 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 throw, <laughs> to, to throw you under the same bus. But at the same time, at the state level, you could take the best policy in every state in Australia and glue the bits and pieces together and you would have an incredible and nearly ideal climate policy for the whole country that achieves this transition in a very timely manner and the federal government thinks about you know macroeconomics and the export balance and they have driven a campaign of fear about what we have to lose which is you know 60 billion in coal exports and 15 billion dollars in lng exports but they forget to mention that the profit margin we make from that doesn't even pay for the 35 ish billion dollars worth of petrol and diesel that Australia has to import. Right. So it's the net zero for the economy, but because a few people make extraordinary wealth out of those exports, that campaign of fear has succeeded. But I think we're starting to see the, the campaign of optimism and what we have to win instead of what we have to lose. And what we have to win is saving $40 billion a year in Australia's households and developing lithium for export using Australian green electricity to make steel, green steel and green uh, aluminum for the world. There's a huge amount to win. I haven't done the details for the Canadian economy, but I'm sure with some creativity and imagination, you would figure out that maybe this is a great thing for Canada to transition and your energy minister is really just either being cynical or unimaginative and and neither are great attributes in a politician. I think you mean our environment minister. And your environment <laughs> minister. I, I don't know your energy minister. <laughs> um, the, the conference of the parties, COP26, starts in Glasgow at the end of this month. As an Australian, what are you hoping to hear from your homeland and from other nations? Someone has to go first and someone has to show true leadership. So there needs to be a world leader who was gonna, who's prepared to step up there and be a Churchill or a Roosevelt or maybe some mashup of the two in terms of like, yes, this is really hard, but we're going to succeed. And I actually think because the economics have flipped in Australia first in favour of the renewable electric battery powered solution, the Australian Prime Minister or Energy Minister could stand up on the world stage and say, look, we've seen the future. We've achieved this solar miracle. We're now going to have an electric vehicle miracle and we're going to have an electrification of heating systems miracle. We will decarbonize our domestic economy by 2030 and we will set the pace for the whole world. The technology we develop in doing that, we will share with you so that you can follow in our footsteps. And in the decade from 2030 to 2040, we will electrify our industry and we will produce so much renewable energy because our nation is blessed and endowed in it that we will make green steel and green aluminum and green copper and green lithium and green silicon and we will that will be our contribution to helping the rest of you decarbonize your economies in that decade so it's a pretty simple speech it would i think it's an achievable vision for australia and i think it would let a lot of other countries have a lot more ambition I don't think that's going to happen, but you asked me what I would like to have happen. <laughs> so what do you think will happen? 
they'll fumble and stumble and maybe dribble out net zero by 2050 and then pretend that there's a lot of natural gas in their transition because they need to do that to make money to be able to afford the transition. The subtitle of the book is An Optimist's Playbook for Our Clean Energy Future. That didn't sound too optimistic. So where does your optimism come from? I think we're one political cycle away from where the technology and the economics works everywhere. And then you'll start to, then these governments will yield because the people will demand it. So batteries are falling in price so quickly. Solar is still falling in price so quickly. Electric vehicles will be the same price in the showroom in 2025 or 2026 as their petrol counterpart. That at that point, political parties from both sides of the aisle in all countries will be trying to gravitate towards this more economic, better for our children, better for our health solution. I just think politicians have egos too. And I don't think they know how to save face from the positions they've held for the last few decades. And we don't have enough, you know, of that Churchillian leadership that could stand up and make that speech. So I think we're, we're one set of politicians away from one set of elections away from having the ambition that's required. Now, sadly, that is sad because we really only have this decade to make a huge dent and we're going to likely be a lot slower in the first half of that decade than we needed to be. But you write in the book that solving climate change should be at least as good as carrots and (laughs) at best ice cream. Maybe what you should do is get the politicians to try your flavor of ice cream. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's what we have been doing and with quite a lot of success in the US. and, And last week we launched Rewiring Australia and we launched a report about the $5,000 savings that will occur to every household if we do this as a national project. And it was enormously well received from political parties on both sides and by the media there. So I think that is starting to happen. There is so much more that you and I could talk about. There's a lot more in your book, including um, numerous charts for those who can grapple with those kinds of things. I thank you so much for your time, though. Absolutely. Thank you. Saul Griffith is the author of Electrify, an optimist playbook for our clean energy future. His book is out this week. And that does it for us. Thanks this week to the team. Intern Danielle Piper, associate producers Rachel Sanders and Serena Renner, engineer Matthias Wolfson, Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.